We rejoice in conflict. Paul is chained to a Roman guard for two plus years. His future is uncertain. Every time somebody knocks at the door of the house, he's chained in. Uh, it could be a guy with paperwork that says, hey, we're going to take you down the road. We're going to cut your head off because, you know, Rome's had enough of you. The Jews have had enough of you. And uh, you just made enough political mess that it's time to go. That's how Paul's living his life when he writes the, the words of Philippians. He's chained with an uncertain future, chained to a Roman guard. And yet he says, and let me just give you the quick review. He says, chapter 1, verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he, speaking of Jesus, he who began a good work in you will complete it. So who started the work of salvation in you this morning? Say it out loud. Who started that work? You didn't start the work of salvation, did you? You can't. Dead people can't help themselves. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. Dead doctors don't heal themselves. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. And Jesus made us alive. Ephesians chapter 2 says He made us alive. He quickened us and made us alive through His grace and His love for us. And so He began the good work. And Paul says, I'm confident that He who began the good work is going to complete it. It's amazing how many times as Christians we think we're supposed to get it all done somehow. We've got to figure this all out and we've got to, we've got to do our thing. Now there's a verse in chapter 2 coming up uh, later in the month uh, where he says, work out your own salvation. Don't freak out because um, it's tied exactly to ex what we've been studying already and it'll fit in great. But Paul really believes God began the work of salvation and he's going to complete it. And we titled that sermon, it's on our... Uh, web page now when you pull it up we titled that sermon verse six is god's got this that's what paul's saying hey to the philippians i'm in jail i'm chained i don't know if i'm ever going to see you again i don't know what my future is but god's got this he who began the good work in you will complete it god's got this can you say it out loud to me god's got this try it now say it like you mean it god's that's right look at your neighbor and tell him he does he does he has it and we don't have to panic as Christians. We don't have to get all freaked out and worried. God has this. And then Paul says, verse 7 through six, seven through 11, he, he wants the Philippians to know, hey, and he's just writing about them now. He says, you guys have done a great job. You've sent help to me in the prison. You've sent a guy named Epaphroditus. But it, here's Paul saying, hey, you sent Epaphroditus to me. And he stayed with me even to the point of his health failing. You, you sent funds to help us through this trial we're in. You've encouraged, you've sent prayers, and you've stood beside me in my trials. And he says, all that you've done evidences enormous faith as a Philippian church to me. While I'm in jail, and God's got this, Paul says, you've got this too. You're evidencing that you've got an understanding of the grace and the sovereignty of God, and you've got this. And so he writes some, some messages about that. Then verse 12 through 26 is where Paul goes, now let me tell you what's happening with me. And what's happening with him is, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if I'm going to get out. I don't know if I'm going to stay in. I don't know if I'm ever going to see you again. I don't know if I can come work with your church anymore. It's been two years since I planted that church in some weird circumstances. And, and I've not been able to get back. I don't know if I can come back. Because I may actually be executed. I don't know if God's going to send me somewhere else, which actually will be what happens. So Paul's saying in all of this, third level, he says, I've got this though. Because God's got me, and God's got you, and you've got this. And God's got me. I'm good. And so he says, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. It doesn't matter what happens to me. As long as the gospel is perpetuated in my life, all is good. If I get martyred, by the way, if they take my life, you guys are going to testify of my testimony. And God's faithful. And by the way, I get an express lane to Jesus. So I'm good. 
I've got, Paul's like, God's got this. You guys are doing really good work. Your, your love is abounding. He says your love is abounding to one another. You're doing good things. He's going to mention that again in chapter two in a minute. He says your love is, is abounding. And then you've got this and I've got this. And then our message from last week is verse 27. I'd like you to look, look at that verse with me. Verse 20, 27 is the first command that Paul gives in this whole book. He's written a whole chapter just to just kind of catch everybody up on what's happening. Here's what's going on with you guys. Here's what's going on with me. Here's how God's overseeing us. But when he gets to verse 27, it's his very first command. And here's his command. Verse 27, he says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come see you or remain absent, that's his, I don't know what's going to happen, I can hear that you're standing firm in one spirit. By the way, Paul says, your life of standing firm in the gospel can be heard. People can hear of it. It can testify to others. When you stand firm in your trials, you can be heard. And so he says, and the reason I emphasize that there is because last week when I preached this whole passage, I forgot that part, so I just had to throw that back in. So here we go. I preached the whole verse last week. That I may hear that you're standing firm with one mind, striving together. This was our term for, for the athlete. The standing firm is a military term. The striving term is, a, is an athletic term. And he's saying we're a team. We're a military unit and we're a team. We're all together, working together, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is fearless, by the way. You're not afraid of your opponents at all, which is a sign of destruction for them, but salvation for you. And that too from God. For to you it has been granted, the Greek word is charis, graced, for Christ's sake, what's the grace? Well, you've been given grace to believe, you've been gr given grace to suffer, and you've been given grace to be in conflict. That's some serious grace right there, by the way. Grace to believe, grace to suffer, and grace to be in conflict. Now, all of that last week was focused around this verse that's the main command of the first part of this chapter, first part of this book, which is you should walk worthy. Walk worthy of the gospel. When Jesus died on the cross for you, it had significant meaning. And when He raised again to, to cover your sins forever so that your sins are never put on your shoulders. Once you trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior, your sins will never be put on your shoulders. Ever. You'll never wear the scars that Jesus wears in heaven. You don't have to. He took that for you. And He justified you. And He purified you. And He cleansed you at the cross. And so you should live a life that's worthy of that sacrifice. So here's our passage today. It just shifts into chapter 2. And Paul writes these words, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, by the way, in the, the if in this, uh, in the literal Greek, in the, in the way Paul writes this, some of your translations are going to put the word since right there. And that's very accurate because there's multiple ways to say if in the Bible. Like I could say, if you're at church today, you are at church today. So I can say, well, if you're at church today, here's what I'd like you to do. Turn in your Bibles, right? Well, that if means if you are and you are. That's exactly what this if means. Now, I could also say if you're going to have supper tonight at church, some of you might, some of you might not. Okay? So if you're going to have supper, that's, that's a different if condition. Well, the first one is what Paul uses. It's if you are and you are. So it's really since there is encouragement and it's the abundance of encouragement. It actually says since there is an abundance of encouragement, since there is consolation of love, since there is fellowship of the Spirit and, and affection and compassion, that's, he's saying all that's part of the church, 
Make my joy complete. Second command in the Scriptures, by the way, if you're keeping records on the side of your Bible, if you're making notes in your columns like I recommend. This is the second command in the, in the book of Philippians. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. So we're going to talk about the character necessary to walk worthy, because the command in chapter 1, verse 27 is walk worthy, and straight out of that, straight out of that command, Paul begins to talk about the character and the attitude that we need to walk worthy. We're going to just look at the character this morning. Next week we'll talk about our week after next. Next week is our Awaken uh, meeting, uh, part of our Awaken series. Then I'll come back to talk about the attitude. So, so here's the character to walk worthy. And Versity just gives us some marks of a really healthy church family. And I'd just like you to see them. I'm going to go really quick through them because they're common sense. I say that like everybody knows, common sense today. They don't, so it's okay. Um, I'm going to go quick, though, through this because it's pretty simple. He says, in our church family, in the Philippian church family, you have an abundance of encouragement, an abundance of love, and an abundance of the fellowship of the Spirit. He's saying, Yo, you guys are doing great. And, and you're, you're encouraging one another. Your agape love, which means selfless love, very important. Your selfless love is evident to me from all that I've read. See, Paul, Paul started the church and then he got literally kicked out of town um, through a whole bunch of weird circumstances. He got kicked out of town and he hasn't been back. So he's getting all this information from the elders of the church that's grown a couple of years strong now. He's getting letters back and forth. He's hearing a word from people from the, the community there. And so he knows their love, their encouragement, and their fellowship in the Spirit is, is abounding and it's doing well. Once again, the Philippian church is a good example. I used to say all the time to our church, the Thessalonian church was one of my favorite churches because of the way Paul talks about it. Okay, But I'm, I'm beginning to fall in love with the Philippian church now because the Philippian church is very impressive. And Paul compliments them consistently throughout this letter, and this is one of those compliments. Now, just so you'll know, the abundance of fellowship of the Spirit, he's talking about the fact that when we get saved, when the Philippian church got planted and Lydia, the... Um, middle-class working lady that got saved, and then when the Philippian jailer and his family got saved, and all the others that bloomed from that salvation moment, when they got saved, the Holy Spirit dwells in them. And there is a fellowship that happens when the Holy Spirit dwells in you that takes everything that's of God and everything that God puts in us through His Holy Spirit, and it manifests itself to one another. It's why some of you, if you've been on a mission field before, it's the weirdest thing to go on a foreign mission field and not have a clue what they're saying in their language. But you can tell when they're having spiritual conversations. You can just tell. And I've been to foreign, I've been to several countries where I, I don't speak Hungarian. It's the third most difficult language in the world, Hungarian is. And uh, the Hungarians like to say, when we get to heaven, they'll teach you Hungarian because it's important to know. And I'm like, I don't think so. I think it's probably going to be something Jesus came up with. But, but they love their language. It's very complicated. Like the word for milk is about 17 letters long. I can't even pronounce it. I've, I've seen it a thousand times in my time over there. I can't even pronounce it. I go, can I have some... That's how it comes out to me. And, and, and yet, when I'm there and they're having conversations that are of a spiritual nature in any little circle I join in, there's all of a sudden this connection that happens with them. 
And you can just sense it. I've been sitting in meetings where somebody was translating a, a speaker who was speaking the Word of God to me, and I begin to catch the flow of what he's saying through the translator, and pretty soon it's almost like I don't need the trans. I'm getting the Spirit of God's anointing those words, and it's flowing in. And Paul's saying there's a fellowship that all that the Spirit has done for us, the Holy Spirit regenerates us, right? The Holy Spirit sanctifies us. The Holy Spirit gives us spiritual gifts. He seals us. He enables us. The Bible says He teaches us all things, yea, the deep things of God, and He makes us fruitful according to the Scriptures, and He strengthens our inner man. All of that working together means that when we get together, you've got all of that in common with each other. And the Spirit can communicate with each other. You can communicate each other through this fellowship of the Spirit. And because of that, He says there's this dimension of relationship that's abundant. And he even says it has affection and compassion. Well, those are fruits of the Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit are love and affection and compassion and encouragement. All of this is the fruit of the Spirit. These are markers and indicators of a healthy church. You are not meant to be sheep out by yourself trying to figure this all out. And then here's Paul's command. It's his second command, and it's the call to complete the leader's goal. He's saying, look, as the leader of your church, the founder of your church, I came into town, I did this uh, several days of crazy work. I got run out on a rail. I got in prison and then run out on a rail. And when I started the church, here's what, here's what the, my, the goal was, that you would walk worthy. And so I want you to complete my joy. It's very interesting. Paul's calling them to a leadership goal. He's saying, as the leader of your church, in prison, chained to a guard, two years, don't know if my future is certain. Here's what I'd like you to do. Command. Not an option, as Philippian church is not an option. So when, when the elders got this letter, they would have had to sit down as elders and go, okay, so our founding pastor says we need to complete his joy. Let's, let's understand what that is. And, and to complete his joy is important. Um, and just coming into that, though, I want to just play a, a leadership card with you that I don't ever do. It's kind of weird to do it with our guests, uh, so many guests here today. Um, we don't do this often, but I'm just going to ask if my elders are here, and I see most of them huddled up in the corner back here. Could my elders just stand real quick? I want the church to, the church knows who they are. Okay, yes, there you go. Oh, Larry's, Larry's in the back room counting the thousands of do- millions of dollars that we were sent in offerings today. There's just so much money. Stay, stay standing, Brother Robert. I saw Brother Kendall. Kendall's one of our elders. Okay. Kendall's our, and Larry, <laughs> there he is with his millions of dollars. So those are our elders. Would y'all just say thank you to them? Listen to me. We, we established as a church that we believe in a plurality of elders and leadership is important here. Um, listen, listen to what the Bible says. Okay. And I'm, I'm one of the guys. We're, we're, there's no headship to our eldership. We're a round table. It's like Knights of the Round Table. Nobody's more important than the other guy. And just because I'm the guy that, you know, Went to Bible college and can say funny Greek words. Doesn't mean I'm any smarter. By the way, I'm not. I'm the dumbest guy in the room when I'm with those guys uh, most of the time. So, But I want you to hear this. The elders are important at a church. The spiritual leaders in your life, the spiritual leaders that lead the mission. Okay, I'm just going to embarrass the crud out of Brother Jim and his family and all these other leaders that support your staff. Your staff, they're spiritual leaders. The Bible says we guard for your souls. You know how important that is? We guard for your souls. Acts 20, 28 says, We guard for your souls. 
They're important. And the Bible says, Paul's saying, you should listen to leadership. You should honor leadership. The Bible actually says you should follow your leadership because your soul health, your the health of your soul is tied to following good spiritual leaders. The health of your soul is tied to that. It's, it's why it grieves me when people won't let leaders lead them. They won't let spiritual men or spiritual women in leadership guide them. It gets very unhealthy when you won't listen to spiritual leaders. And when you don't let spiritual leaders help you. And Paul's saying, you need to make my joy complete. Here's my deal. And here's he gives just this little list. When you make my joy complete, you're going to have unity of mind, unity of spirit. Okay? Unity of mind, unity of spirit, and unity of purpose. That's what's going to make Paul go, yes, they got it. Now John, one of the, one of the writers of the New Testament... Uh, John the Beloved, Jesus' uh, youngest disciple in his discipleship group, John says, it makes my joy complete when I hear that my children are walking according to the Scriptures. Okay, So his joy is that way. Paul's saying the unity of the body, the Philippian church, will make my joy complete. And so he says to do that, you've got to have unity of mind, unity of love, and unity of spirit, and unity of purpose. When he uses the word mind in that first verse, when he used the word mind, he means you're supposed to all, now get this, supposed to all think alike. Well, that doesn't happen every day. You know, that just doesn't happen every day. We have a great argument, a regular conversation with my elders. Uh, Larry's on the back row today. We have a great conversation with him because he loves Chevy. He calls it Chevy, not Chevy. Chevy, and I love Fords, okay? And so, you know, NASCAR days come by and we just pray that Toyotas don't win anymore. We're sick of those guys. So... I just don't get that. I don't know where they came from. Man, they're good. But here's the thing. We don't like the same kind of race cars. We don't like the same kind of music all the time. A bunch of my church family don't like the music that I like. A bunch of our church, some of our church don't want to have drums banging away all the time. And some of them can't wait for the drums to bang away all the time. So we're not thinking alike. Is that what it means? That's not what Paul's talking about. Those are surface issues. Those are like way up here. Who really cares? Paul's talking about a unity of thinking that goes into your spiritual life. Look at look in your Bible in Romans chapter 8 for me, will you? Just flip over to Romans chapter 8 and verse 5. How in the world is our thinking ever going to be alike? How is that even possible? Well, it's real simple, really. Romans 8 verse 5. Those who are according to the flesh set their minds... It's the same Greek word as what Paul's saying. Have this... You're to have this... Uh, let your mind be in unity. It's the same Greek word. Set their minds on things of the flesh. Those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. Now, how would that translate? Verse 6. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. It doesn't subject itself to the laws of God. It's not even able to do so. Those who are under the flesh cannot please God. So we set our mind, if we're going to think alike... And be in unity as a body, we have to set our mind on the Spirit of God and what He's telling us. There's another passage in Corinthians and another one in Ephesians that says, let your mind dwell on the things of God. And another one says, let your mind, let Christ dwell in your mind richly. So the Holy Spirit and God and Jesus, the, the unity of the three of those, the tri-unity of the three of those, are who needs to be controlling our minds now we can think alike. And we don't have to like the same clothes. We don't have to like the same music. We don't have to like the same singers. 
We don't have to like the same cars. We don't have to like the same colors. But if the Spirit of God is dwelling in us, we can think alike about the things that matter most, the eternal things, the things of great value on the earth, which is the souls of men and women, which is the lives, which is the, the spiritual lives of people around us. Now we can think alike. Jim and I think alike in those things. I don't even know what kind of cars he likes. I don't even know what kind of food he likes. Okay, And I know because he's so skinny, he doesn't like as much food as I like. But I can tell you this, we think alike in the things of the Scriptures and the things of God because we dwell in the Scriptures together and we let the Spirit lead us. And that's how it's supposed to be. We're supposed to have this unity of mind. And then born out of that is going to be a unity of love. See where he says, have this unity of love. There's any consolation. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Maintaining, maintaining the same love. So our love is to be agape, selfless love. We're supposed to maintain the same love. And uh, that, that's going to be born out of Christ dwelling in us. That's the fruit of the Spirit. When your mind is set on the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 6 says, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Capital L, capital O, capital V. Capital E. And then we're supposed to have, I love this, he says, um, make my joy complete by having the same love, united in spirit. United in spirit, little s, little s. Not capital Holy Spirit, little s. United in spirit. This is a, a one-time word. It's only used one time in the whole New Testament. Actually, it's, it's not found in Greek literature. We, most people believe Paul made up a word. Um, to make this work. And I say Paul because Paul's the writer. The author was God. So God needed to make up a word for us to understand how we're supposed to dwell together as a church. And he says, I want you to be united in spirit. And, and it's, it's the word for, uh, it, it, it's the word for one souled. It literally means sum, in, in the Greek it's funny. It says sumsuko. It's one of those great words. Sumsuko. And it means one, suko is soul. One souled. We're to be one souled together. If the Holy Spirit is guiding me and raising up my soul and giving my soul health, which is what He does, when He, when he does that, now we can be one souled. And I'm actually going to spin off our, our ladies group is called Soul Sisters. Good job, ladies. And as men, we're not allowed to ever go on their Facebook page or see any of their stuff because they're all a little secret thing happening all the time and I don't even know what happens with them. I have to get word from the Soul Sisters. Okay? That's our ladies group. But in, in the midst of that, this word means soul brothers. He literally means I want the church to be soul connected, soul sisters and soul brothers so that you're literally one together. It means we have the same desires and passions. We have the same values and we choose to live for Christ alone. Our goal, our goal as brothers and sisters in Christ, our goal is to live to the one who has scars in his hands and feet, scars in his side that he took on eternally so you could be healed of your scars. That's our goal is to live for him. And that's why he says you need to have you need to walk in unity of spirit. Now, I just want to remind you that the unity of the church is key to glorifying when we live in unity as a church, you glorify God when a church is disunified. Some of you have been parts of churches like that. Some of you have been parts of churches that are very disunified. When churches are squabbling and fussing and fighting, the glory of God is not there. Literally, the glory moves away 
from that. And, and there's a bunch of Bible verses about that. Acts chapter 4, you don't need to turn there, but Luke wrote these words. He said, the multitude of believers were of one heart and one soul. One heart, one soul. Acts chapter 4 then says, as a result of that unity, they had power and great grace was upon them all. You know what our church longs for? The power of God and the grace of God to dwell among us. That's what we long for more than anything else. Well, how's that going to happen? We have to be unified. We have to be unified around the principles and the purposes and the values of God. We have to be unified. John 17, verse 21. I read it last week. Jesus Christ is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's gone deep into the garden. He's asked his three closest disciples to come with him to pray. They've fallen asleep. And Jesus is praying so hard that what should be sweat drops are actually blood drops coming out of his face. He's praying so intensely to his father over the things of what he's about to partake of in taking on the sin of the world, the sin of Stan, the sin of all of you. He has to drink that in. And the night in the Garden of Gethsemane, it is so stressful to him. He's got blood coming from his face. And later on, an angel is going to have to come minister to him in that garden. And in that prayer, he, write, he says these words, John 17, 21. The glory that you, the Father, has given me, I have given it to them. That they may be one, even as we are one. Unity is where that glory comes from. I in them, you in me, and they may become perfectly one. What's going to happen with that? So that the world may know that you sent me and love them. When we dwell in unity, as a church should, when we lay aside our goofy differences and start looking at the big picture of things, here's what happens. The world can know that Jesus is real and was sent by God, and the world can know that God loves them through Jesus when we dwell in unity. Does that make sense? All right, so here's the... There, there's, and by the way, this isn't a unity because we're all in the same building. Well, we're, you know, it's like, you know, we're all in the same building, we're all the same denomination or whatever so that's not the unity that that paul's talking about the same kind of pre it's it's not based on anything external it's a it's a unity that's based on a spiritual moment in your life where you say god everything you want is more important than anything i want and so for me to dwell within this body of believers these brothers and sisters i want you to be glorified and the other brothers and sisters go well i want you god to be glorified well i want you to be glorified so i'm not important you're important and we're all in the same purpose now and it's internal not external you say how in the world how in the world could that happen well i'm glad you asked colossians 3 verse 14 colossians 3:14 says beyond all these things put on love agape which is the perfect bond of unity. When we love one another as Christ loves us. And it's the agape word. We love like Christ loves. Sacrificially. Now we have the bond of unity that we need. And unity of purpose literally means in the scriptures. Minding the same things. Well, What's the purpose that Paul wants them to be unified around? Philippians 1 verse 27. First command. He says, second command, make my joy complete by finishing out the first command. I want my joy to be complete, which is my command to you, but you're going to do that by walking, verse 127, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Only do that. Make that your sole single purpose 
And now we can walk together. And then there's these three challenges to unity that show up. And he just, he just explains them sort of in a... It's the, the backwards commands as some people call them. He's saying, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. So here's... Selfishness is one of the biggest challenges to church unity, to body life. I'm going to tell you it's one of the biggest challenges to your spiritual health, to your soul health, is selfishness. Erythion is self-seeking. It's so easy to tell my American friends. It's so easy to tell you what this word means because Paul used it and he took it from a political um, word. He took it out of the politics of Rome because for some reason, it's very rare here in America, but for some reason, when people get elected into politics, they're elected by the people for the people and they stop caring about what the people want because they're associated with a party and they decide that the party issues are more important than what the people want and they begin being driven by these selfish ambitions for the party. And they say, you know, I think we want to accomplish this. Well, all the people are going, we don't want to do that. We want you to do this. And they go, no, the party, it knows what's best for you. That's this word. I know it's just so rare in America for that to happen. <laughs> but, but the reality is, it's a political term where people are saying the party, exal- the exaltation of what I want to do in my group is more important than what you want and what God wants. So we're going to do our thing. It's selfishness. It's selfishness. And it's dangerous. Then there's this word arrogance. In the, in the one of the translations, you use the word arrogance. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. And this word is not group ambition. Like the first word has to do with politics of somebody getting associated with a party and saying, well, I'm going to do what I want to do in my party as a group. This word is I'm going to do what I want to do by myself. I don't care. I just don't care anymore what anybody thinks. It's not tied to a corporate or political party. It's personal exaltation over others. One commentator says this, a person who assertively, arrogantly claims to have the right opinion, who is in fact in error, and that word is kinos in the Greek, he has erroneous opinions. He has erroneous opinions of himself. He's conceited without reason. He is deluded. He is self-promotion, self-promoting and self-glorifying. He will fight to prove himself supreme. Whenever you have that kind of attitude, you have discord. This is what the word personal vanity is. Some of your translations use the word vanity. And that's the word vanity. Those two things destroy what Paul's saying is the goal to walk worthy in unity. They destroy it. And it's when you get all about yourself. It's people that are self-centered, looking out for your own interest. Look at the verse again. They're looking out for their own interest alone. They're looking out for their own interests. So what does selfishness do? What does arrogance, like he's talking about, do? Well, it puts you first. That's what happens. Hear, hear this real clear. Selfishness puts you first. You first. Arrogance puts you first. Self-centered behavior is I'm going to put me first. When you put yourself first, all relationships will suffer. It's why Paul says, please underscore this in your Bible, highlight it in your electronic Bible, however you can do that, younger generation. Make it real bold. Do nothing, nothing from selfishness. Because any little taste of selfishness destroys unity which beats up the glory of God and drives it away. 
Do nothing from selfishness. Selfishness is a you-centered behavior. And it disrupts relationships. Some of you have broken relationships because one or both of you in the relationship got selfish. Selfishness destroys families. It dismantles churches. I've seen it multiple times. It distracts from God's glory. It dilutes the testimony of God's people. And it damages friendships. That's what selfishness does. Now listen, Satan's end game, the end game of capital S-A-T-A-N, the capital E enemy of us, the end game is not to get you to go paint pentagrams all over your neighborhood, all over the signs in your, in your neighborhood or buildings in your neighborhood, paint pentagrams and catch kitty cats and have seances in you know 2 a.m. in the morning in the middle of the night in your backyard with a bunch of candles. That is not the end game of Satan. It's not his end game. He wouldn't mind if you tried it, by the way. But it's not his end game. We tend to think of him as this, you know, crazy evil lead, you know, spiritual power that wants us to worship him in black robes and all that kind of stuff. That's not his end game. It's not what he did in the garden. You know what he did in the garden? He made Adam and Eve think about themselves. He made Adam and Eve think about themselves over God. Over the commands of the one who gave them everything. They lived in a beautiful garden with no, there was no humidity in the garden. There was, there were no thorns and thistles. There were, there were no ants that could bite you and hurt you. Okay? They were in the perfect place. And Satan made them think about themselves. And as soon as they did, they chose themselves over God and they wrecked, they wrecked the beauty of what God had given them. You know that Satan just wants you to think about you more than anything else. That's all he wants you to do. Make you the most important part of your life. He, he loves those old commercials, those old, I think they were old beer commercials when I was growing up, okay? You know, you go for all the gusto. You make you the most important thing. No. That damages and destroys all relationships. Okay, it has to be our mantra. It has to be our mantra to remain healthy as a church. We have to say that we're going to become in the very fabric of who we are at Northside, we're going to become unified around the values of Christ. We're going to make a daily lifestyle that selfishness will never be a part of that. We want the one who loves us, Christ who is our friend, to be the one leading us. And we want to follow His values and His purposes. 1 Corinthians 9.23, Paul says these words, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. I've been working through this in my, my small group study with my men on uh, Wednesday nights. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker. All things for the sake of the gospel. Colossians 3, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Not in your name. Not for you, for Him. Whatever you do, do it all for Him. Well, I need to go out and buy a new car. Okay. If you need a new car, go do that for Him. Find a way to make sure He's on that page with you. And your car is His car. Your things are His things. Your family is His family. Your career is His career. Your calling in life is His calling, not yours. Don't make it about you because that damages everything and it lives to the garden sin of Adam and Eve. And God calls us to do nothing of selfishness. Do it all in the name of Christ Jesus. Nothing in Jesus' nature was selfish. That's all about next week, by the way. Philippians 2, verse 5, have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And it doesn't say He exalted Himself. 
If anybody could exalt himself, Jesus could. It doesn't say he did that. He let his father exalt him because he was obedient to the point of death. Nothing in Jesus' nature was selfish. He left heaven. He veiled his glory. He limited himself. He suffered and died a cruel death on the cross to save us from our sins. He was not selfish. And Paul says, I'm calling you to make my joy complete by walking worthy. Do nothing selfish in that. You cannot walk worthy of the gospel if you're in the way. You can't do it. Live for the sake of the gospel, not for yourself. 